that, if Mary, would you like to introduce yourself and sure. explain? So, hello everybody. Um, I'm new to this actual, you know, teaching modality, and it's kind of uh, future uh, stuff. But um, so, I am a nurse from UNMH. I've been a psychiatric nurse for 25 years. I have my master's degree in nursing. I've worked extensively with APD. I'm an instructor in the CIT program. I co-authored the CIT program with Nils and Matt. And I've worked, I met them first working in the psychiatric emergency services at UNMH where I was a supervisor. And so I've been working with a patient suffering from mental illness for many, many years. The uh, information I'm going to give you today, I'm sure all of you, um, actually I'm not sure, I'm wondering if all of you have had training in uh, de verbal de-escalation. Um, I'm sure you probably have had something. And this is uh, modified content from what I teach healthcare workers working in our acute inpatient locked psychiatric units, where, as you can well imagine, we're uh, conducting verbal de-escalation every day, multiple times a day, working with patients to keep them safe. And they're the same people that Matt and Niels and Lawrence would bring to me in PES, which is Psych Emergency Services. And so, I, you know, many times we cross over and work with the, the same people. So just to get started talking about conflict and how we deal with conflict, obviously our world and civilizations have always included conflicts between individuals. We just had a big election where we saw that there's a lot of conflict in our community. <laughs> um, and learning to speak with one another again after that, I think, uses some of these techniques as well. What I'm going to talk about today are some reliable evidence-based methods for reducing conflict, handling agitated people in de-escalating situations that are developing into aggression, violence, and danger. And one of the really, um, I know that for many people, you prob probably all know people who are just naturally good at this. And you've probably worked with people on the streets who, you know, you like, why don't you take this? You're really good at this. I do think, and I, when I first came up with a class for this topic, I had to ask myself, I wonder if you can teach empathy. And I do believe that you can teach empathy, but I think that it requires um, you to take a path into self-knowledge and suspending judgment. And I think that that, you know, in, for example, the de-escalation tips and techniques class and the CIT training, they talk about inherent bias, that none of us come to this point in our lives without having some kind of traumatic experience. And, um, and what I tell people working with, directly with, mentally ill patients, severely mentally ill patients on locked psychiatric units, is you really have to know your triggers. It's essential to know, for example, if, you know, and I tell them, like, if your brother was a meth addict and took the whole family down um, and put your parents through a really hard time, you need to understand if that pushes your buttons. And um, I've heard, you know, staff members refer to meth addicts in really derogatory terms. And I'm like, well, how are you going to reach out and help this person if you're going into the relationship already with the judgment? So um, in the class that I give to staff, it's a three-hour long class, and I show pictures of snakes and 
spiders and tornadoes and other things that might um, get on people's nerves. And I show pictures of people who are drunk and people who are um, like all tat tattoos all over their face and multiple facial piercings and appearance and all of those things. And, you know, do these push your buttons and just asking people to really take a look at what has happened in your life and what are your biases? We all have them. And knowing that when knowing that when you're coming onto a situation and attempting to um, establish a rela relationship and um, form, you know, uh, basically a, a rapport with somebody as, when you're first meeting them. Because one of the things that I say to the staff is, I really believe that the first few minutes that you are talking to somebody, that you're coming up to somebody, your demeanor, your body language, et cetera, predicts the outcome of that interaction more than anything. So I teach about situational awareness. I know that you all get a lot of training in this and we talk about, so as you're coming up and um, you get a call and you know that uh, somebody is mentally ill or they're behaving in a way that's bizarre or they're not making any sense, there are a lot of reasons why people can um, come into contact with, uh, you know, the uh, police and uh, certainly when I've taught at the academy and I've taught in CIT, I say, you know, what percentage of your calls involves somebody that's mentally ill and it's usually a fairly large percentage of calls. So with situational awareness, recognizing agitated people, um, giving space to people who are agitated, uh, keeping uh, keeping in mind dangerous items that are in the uh, area, training to retreat if necessary and waiting for backup, getting help. Then I talk about risk factors. What are the risk factors that might cause somebody to be a danger to themselves or others and um, bring them into a situation where they are um, escalating? So, it can be um, chaotic activity levels. It can be perceived negative attitudes on the part of the police, on the part of uh, healthcare workers. I, I say this is really part of the magic. If you walk up to somebody and you've already got a really negative attitude, I can guarantee that you are projecting that, that you're telegraphing that, that people in distress really have the ability to sense that you are judging them as you walk up to them. Whereas if you walk up with a genuine commitment to helping them, that projects something very different. So um, difficulties in communication, I teach about patients suffering from schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. There are so many different reasons why an individual can be psychotic and determining why they're psychotic can be very helpful in figuring out how to interact with them. If somebody's psychotic, for example, because they're suffering from an acute exacerbation of schizophrenia, you'll notice that they're very disorganized. They may be looking um, around them as if somebody's speaking to them. You can find that when you're talking to them, there's this delay and it could be, we do this little exercise in one of my classes about hearing voices and how hard it is to take direction when you're hearing voices because a person who's suffering from schizophrenia, the voices are as real to them as your voice. And even though we can't, we don't know what causes schizophrenia, we do know that when 
individuals are hearing hearing voices in a true um, episode of schizophrenia on MRI, we found that the same auditory part of the brain cortex lights up as yours is listening to my voice right now. So the voices are as real to the individual as my voice is. Um, so one of the other things I really consider and tell my staff is patient, uh, individuals who are afraid are the most dangerous individuals. And so very early in my interaction with somebody, I want to find out if they're afraid. And if they're afraid, then my decision tree about where the conversation is going to go is triggered and I'm going to try to figure out why they're afraid because I'm going to try to be, I'm going to try to form a partnership with them based upon safety. Um, because that is what they're looking for is reassurance and being reassuring and calm, genuine and committed to forming, um, you know, for example, I'll say, well, um, you're talking to the right person because I am here to keep you safe and try to form that um, uh, rapport with the individual that I can use later if they start to lose it. Um, so uh, unclear uh, instructions, I think, you know, with somebody who's very disorganized, well, let me just go back to the other reasons why people can be psychotic. They can be psychotic, obviously, because they're using illegal substances. I mentioned methamphetamine earlier. We see lots of people in PES brought in by APD who have been using meth for weeks on end and are uh, floridly psychotic. They're extremely disorganized. They're very scared. They're very um, agitated. And in those circumstances, I want to refer to a video that I've seen of uh, Lawrence Saavedra, where he was de-escalating a patient here in Albuquerque. I was teaching at the academy. It was pretty remarkable because it, the, the individual was extremely agitated and not making any sense whatsoever. And the only word that made any sense was water. And so Lawrence picked up on that and, you know, reflected back water, water. And um, so um, it took how long, Lawrence? Probably about 15 minutes to get him into where he was at least somewhat where we could talk. And you to threw him a, a bottle of water, a right? A bottle of water. And um, so, you know, um, when you meet somebody who's not making any sense, it's very helpful, and we're going to talk about active listening in a minute, to, um, to, to listen to what they're saying, see if you can pick up one word that's going to be a hook. Um, other risk factors, it, I think, you know, there's a, real, there's a gap between our patients or our patients, individuals and ourselves. Um, it's very hard for us to put ourselves in the position of somebody who is acutely psychotic or acutely mentally ill. And um, so it, you know, it behooves us to learn something about what's going on in that individual's life. Is English their first language? Is, um, are they you know, from a different culture? Um, are they frightened by a male or female in uniform coming up to them? Is that something that's triggering them? Do they need to be reassured that we're here to help them? And what's happening in the patient's life and mind um, that brings them into their encounter with us? So keeping that in mind, just talking about skills for de-escalation, people who are effective de-escalators are open, non-judgmental, supportive, self-aware, and confident without appearing arrogant. Uh, 
And I think that's really critical in the early stages of an interaction. I want to emphasize that as a group, the mentally ill are no more dangerous than the general population, that in fact the mentally ill are much more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. But um, people who are acutely psychotic or uh, and for whatever reason um, can be dangerous. And so uh, I want, you know, uh, that's a situation where using some of these techniques can be very helpful. It's of utmost importance to re remain calm and committed to resolving the situation. I'm pretty sure that when you've seen people who are very good at this, one of the things that you'll notice is that they're calm. And that, um, and I'm not talking about pretending to be calm. I'm talking about a rational detachment that actually allows you to be calm. It's so incredibly effective because it communicates to the person that you're trusting them not to lose it. And that's a very powerful thing. Your calmness is doing that. Um, and then if the situation warrants, move other people to safer place. Um, the sense of calm, as I said, con conveyed by us helps the patient to manage feelings of anger and aggression. It communicates to them that despite their anger, they are trusted not to be violent. When somebody is angry, it's very helpful to uh, basically name the emotion and say, I can see that you're angry and um, can you tell me a little bit about what that's what what that is and um, why you're angry and just try to and this is moving into active listening, which is one of the ways that we diffuse escalating violence and behavior. And then really, I think this is the magic, and that is um, treat the patient with dignity and respect. And what I so when. You guys would bring me a patient to the Sally Port in PES, and he'd be in cuffs or she'd be in cuffs or whatever, and spitting and screaming and, you know, using every manner of foul language, et cetera, threatening me. Um, I would find that what I would say, Officer Saavedra, can you tell me the name of this young man, please? And um, when I would address him with respect, it's almost like the element of, of surprise that people who are... Uh, insulting you, threatening you, um, calling you names, don't expect you to come back with respect. And so it, you can kind of almost see their body language change when you are addressing them with respect. Um, don't engage in power struggles. Um, people who are suffering from maybe personality disorders or some other mental illnesses will oftentimes try to engage us in power struggles. And so I uh, would tell my class, you know, I just won't argue with patients. I won't argue with anybody. And somebody in the class said, yes, you will. And I didn't realize I was being baited, but I uh, just went straight to what I do with patients. And I said, okay, maybe driving home, I'll say, I'm going to the gym. No, I'm not. I'm you know, but I just sidestepped the argument. And that's what I do with patients. And I'll just go on to um, offer them options or, uh, ask them respectfully what's going on, but I will not engage in an argument. Um, I think we have to be extremely aware of our body language, such as posture, facial expression, and eye contact. And why do you think that we're losing our ability to speak and understand body language? Anybody? 
Is that true? Let me text you yeah. an answer. Text yeah, text me an answer. Somebody text me an answer. Yeah, text me an answer. So if, uh, if you texted me, tell me about it. Could that mean any number of things? Could it mean, tell me about it? Or could it be really compassionate? Tell me about it. So we're losing. We need emojis now to um, to speak, but to you know communicate. But um, I don't think that uh, anybody in this room, or anybody on this channel, or myself and my staff can afford to lose the ability to speak body language because honestly, when if I'm asking somebody if they're suicidal, and they say no. I'm like, okay, the front door didn't work, but I'm going to reevaluate that because I'm not convinced. And it's not based on what they said. It's based on their body language. And body language speaks sometimes a lot more accurately than words, especially in people who are acutely agitated. Do not take verbal attacks personally. I'm just going to tell you they are never about you. Now, they may um, sound very much like they're you. You know, they, they may be, you know, saying, I, I hate cops or, you know, you know, get out of here. And it may sound like they're talking to you. Or for me, you know, they might say, get me, get me a doctor. I don't want to talk to a nurse. And it may sound very personal. But if we take it personally, we become battered professionals in our professions. And I just want to tell you and, and to emphasize that it's never about you, the things that they're saying. It's about where they are and what's going on with them. So um, assessing the reason for the patient's anger and or aggression will help in determining the means for resolving the problem. I always think, you know, I'm sure, you know, as you come up on a situation, you're looking at everything. For me, it's really important to get some collateral information about what's going on, help me figure out why the person is psychotic, um, because that, um, one of the things that I say about verbal de-escalation, there is no one way. I've had staff members tell me, I treat everybody the same. I'm like, well, I think what you're trying to say is that you try to treat people without bias and you try to treat people fairly, but you cannot treat everybody the same. You have to take your instructions and your, um, you know, you have to form your interventions based on an individualized assessment of what's going on with that particular human being. So part of a successful de-escalation is something called active listening, and that's a buzzword that I'm sure you've heard a million times, but it really is a skill. And it's one of those things that when you use it and it works, it becomes part of your toolbox, and it does work. And um, so this is where you make a conscious effort to hear not only the words that another person is saying, but more importantly, try to understand the complete message being sent that involves looking at their body language. In order to do this, you must pay attention to the other person very carefully. Um, acknowledgements can be something as simple as the nod of a head or uh-huh. You aren't necessarily agreeing with the person. You are simply indicating that you're listening. Your body language, your body language and other signs to acknowledge that you are listening also remind you to pay attention and not let your mind water wander sorry <laughs> so um yeah don't let your mind water um so i coached soccer for 20 years and i sit on the side of the field like this 
And I learned very early in my career as a psychiatric nurse that that is not the way to stand when you're bringing me somebody in handcuffs to psychiatric emergency services. I'm doing something more like this and um, with my palm up, et cetera, to um, indicate that I'm not judging, that I'm not um, authoritarian, that I'm there to help. And so my body language is very important in active listening. To become an active listener, you want to look at the speaker directly, keeping in mind that that's highly cultural. You know, in, I learned I, I worked for a period of time up in the North, northeast quadrant of our state, and I had the privilege of going out to places without electricity, without water, and speaking with elderly Navajo um, individuals. And I learned quickly that it wasn't polite for me to make constant eye contact with my elder in that setting that I need to modify that. And so it's a real cultural thing. Try to put aside distracting thoughts. This is true whether you're on duty or you're with your family. Um, like, you know, if you're having a political discussion with somebody and uh, the whole time you're talking, I'm thinking of my response and not hearing a word that you're saying, then I haven't, I'm not participating in the conversation. It's not a real exchange. Um, listen to the speaker's body language, show that you are listening. Not occasionally. Smile if appropriate and use other facial expressions. You have to use that with a, a lot of um, care. Uh, I have a good sense of humor. So when I'm working with people, sometimes things are really funny and they are really absurd. And sometimes when you acknowledge that, it's a very humanizing moment. On the other hand, if somebody's very paranoid and I'm in the nurse's station and I'm laughing, I can guarantee you they think that I'm laughing about them. So you know, use that um, with caution. Note your posture, we talked about that. Encourage the speaker to continue with small verbal comments. Um, I will often let people vent and just listen before I do anything. Um, because while they're venting, they're sharing without even my asking any questions, a lot of very useful information that can inform my next intervention. And so, um, sometimes I'll just let people talk. It's very helpful for people who are agitated to just talk for a while and listen. And then provide feedback as necessary. So, you know, uh, this is a crash course and a very complex topic, but um, to summarize, our personal filters, assumptions, judgments, and beliefs can distort what we hear. As a listener, your role is to understand what is being said. This may require you to reflect what is being said and ask questions using things like what I'm hearing is, sounds like you are saying. Summarize the speaker's comments periodically, defer judgment. Interrupting is a waste of time. It frustrates the speaker and limits full understanding of the message. Obviously, that's not always possible. Sometimes you need to interrupt, but a lot of times when I need to interrupt, I'll say, I'm very interested in what you have to say, but like in my situation, but I need to know, do you have any allergies? Or, you know, something um, that indicates that I'm there to help. Allow the speaker to finish each point before asking questions. You, Obviously, with somebody who's very high on mess, such as in the case that I'm referring to with Lawrence, that's not such possible. Lawrence, that's really high on mess. <laughs> I couldn't sleep the night before. Yeah. <laughs> Be candid, open, and honest in your response to the extent possible. Assert your opinions respectfully. 
and treat the other person in a way you think that he or she would like to be treated. Any questions? Any questions from the network? And don't forget to star sixes to mute and unmute if you're on the phone. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, I have a question for you. All right. Um, what what barriers do you see are most common with de-escalation? I really think um, uh, there are a couple. Um, one is I think words are very powerful, and if you are hearing, you know, uh, that you're going to see somebody who's a POS meth addict. Um, Point of sale. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Point of sense. What? what? Mary, that language. I'm sorry. I, there's a child on the screen. I swear. I, I whispered. I whispered. <laughs> um, so if you go into it with, uh, you know, judgment, I think that's a huge barrier. If you go into it, um, you know, I just want to say, because judgment toward people with substance abuse issues is rampant and it runs through healthcare as well as through um law enforcement, but nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be a meth addict or I'm going to be a heroin addict. These are people that if you knew their story, you would probably have a lot more compassion. You probably will never know their story, but just know that there is a story there and um, that um, you bringing those people to me or to jail or to wherever may be the best thing that has happened to their family in a really long time. And it may be the right person in the right place at the right time that will actually make a difference. And that's such an honor. Um, other barriers, I think, are not knowing ourselves. I think that's huge. Not knowing uh, what pushes our buttons. Um, and uh, not being willing to take a look at that. You know, that's hard. People go into psychiatrists have to uh, undergo psychotherapy. And why is that? Because we're crazy. crazy. <laughs> I think it's because they're supposed to know what their triggers are. They're supposed to know what their bias is. And they're supposed to subject that to uh, supervision and uh, insight so that they can be present for people as opposed to judging them. That's great. I have one more question, but I want to make sure that everyone else has a uh, chance to ask a question. So if anyone's asked a question of Mary... More than welcome. And again, if you are on by phone, star six is to mute and unmute. This is Harzuski with State Police. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more about the how the brain works and what you saw in an MRI when people hear voices. It sounds like you saw you said they have the same brain activity as when they hear when you and I hear voices. Is that right? That's certainly what the research indicates, yes. Um, I, I don't know that we're in the, at the point in psychiatry and neuroimaging of calling anything fact, um, but certainly I've seen studies that indicate that people experiencing true auditory hallucinations on MRI or other neuroimaging studies, um, the same area of the auditory cortex lights up in the brain as does when we're hearing actual speech. So with that, this is Niels Rosenbaum, with that study, it was a while ago now, 
the one that I'm thinking of. It's exactly as she's saying. So if you were in a, in a functional MRI, it sort of takes pictures as you go along, like a videotape of your brain, and it can sort of show where there's activity, what, how much sugar you're using, essentially. And so if you're listening to something, a certain part of your brain will light up, and then you stop talking. And then if you start talking, a different part will light up for everybody. I mean, this is roughly. But if you're, if you're experiencing auditory hallucinations, they kind of both light up as if you're talking and listening. It's sort of uh, very sad. It is. Yeah, these are horrible. Thank you. Sure. Horrible illnesses that uh, dramatically impact people's lives. It's great. Any other questions for Mary? We we had a question. This is. Oh, go ahead. Oh. Um, this is Camilla with U.S. Probation. So we know all of our clients that we work with really well. So we already have our own like personal biases against them and, and them against us. So how would you suggest we get around that, you know, when we're dealing with like a crisis situation? Should we have like another officer respond or just address it right away? I mean... That's a really good question. And um, I think the very first important step is that you know you have a bias. Because if you know you have a bias, then you can um, hopefully take that into consideration when you're um, reacting or interacting with somebody. It is often helpful to have another person with you when somebody uh, is, we call it uh, transference. If, if somebody has a negative uh, impression of you based on prior uh, interactions or whatever the, you know, the justice system or what's been done to them and you know that they um, don't get along with you, it can be very helpful to bring in somebody with whom they don't have that kind of conflict already established. This is Niels Rosemann. How do you handle that now? What do you do now? Well, um, well me, I think I usually say I know that we've had issues. It's been a difficult time for you because usually if we're showing up, there's some kind of like non-compliance. Um, but I try to be self-aware. I mean, I think transference happens both ways. It doesn't matter how professional you try to be. So, I mean, there's just some people you get along better with, and there's some people that push all of your buttons. So sometimes, like, by the end of the week, we're all kind of burnt out. So maybe limiting contact on Fridays? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for that. No, that sounds like you are doing that. Correctly. I mean, do you ever have a chance to, is it a possibility that you switch? Like if someone's just like, I can't stand that person, do you, is that something you would ever switch? Because that obviously is a mixed bag too. You know, I think that we, we have in certain situations, but it's also difficult because we don't want our clients to start like PO shopping. Like they'd start mm -hmm. determining ahead of time, like they want this person, they don't want that person. And it's the same for us. Like we can't, you know, look at a client and say, like, this guy is going to be really hard to deal with. I don't want him or I don't want her. So, yeah, poor Jason. He gets a lot of those that no one else wants. Um, so I, I think in, in really, if there's actual reasons, it's not just personality issues, I think we could switch. But No, it's. I mean, it sounds to me like you do it very well. I mean, the only thing I would – I'm trying to think of something because I feel like I – add something. Um, <laughs> I, go ahead. I, yeah, I, I think con just kind of consultation with your peers, you know, if you're having some 
some issues, you know, it's always very helpful to talk to, you know, the other POs there. What would you do? I have this problem. Um, do you have any suggestions? Because I'm, you know, I'm kind of at the end of my rope here. And very often that's very helpful. Yeah, Absolutely. I have something on that, Lawrence Savage with APD. I think it's actually better that you don't hand them off because you're talking about you have a bias, they have a bias. You miss a huge opportunity to change those biases when you just pass it off instead of working on that. And I think in the long run, both of you will be better, you know, or I would look at it, I would be better because if I can put my bias aside and still get my job done, then maybe I'll bring down that bias wall and they'll see me differently and maybe the next PO or the next law enforcement that they deal with will benefit from what I've, you know, stuck around and done. But that's just my opinion. That's a good point. And, and to add to, this is Neil's to add to what Lawrence is saying, sometimes one of the easiest, <laughs> sometimes one of the easiest techniques is just sort of uh, stating the problem like that. So if you're in the middle of a conflict, sometimes just stating the problem, it can be effective. So instead of just, they know that you're biased and they're biased and back and forth, you just talk about it matter of factly. You know, like maybe I remind you of somebody, whatever the bias might be, just, you just say it. You know, because I've had overtly racist patients and you just sort of point it out, you know, that makes me uncomfortable when you use that word and let's try to move on from that, you know, that kind of thing, right. as opposed to just ignoring it. And I think Jason had one more thing. Um, I just, some of my worst cases, my most difficult cases, what has helped me is actually discussing the bias, going over our issues, that, we, that he has with me or I have with him. Um, Dr. Nero and I have had a mutual client and uh, James and uh, it's been very difficult to break down the barriers, but we were able to actually do it to, for the most part. Uh, but I think that also helps is discussing what the problems are and the issues and seeing if there can be any kind of a, if we can fix it. Very good. Do you find that you use your muscles to intimidate him, Jason? <laughs> uh, when this guy's high on meth and everything like that, nah, doesn't work. <laughs> okay. I try. I put him in a headlock a couple make, times. Yeah, and I wanted to make sure that James in New York had a, a chance because I think you were asking a question. Hi, hi. Yeah, it's James calling in from New York. I just wanted to um, give credit to one of my officers who was a student a couple weeks ago. We were talking about the brain imaging with hallucinations, auditory and visual. And he asked a question that I never had thought of in 10 years of being a social worker. He said, well, when people with these hallucinations go to sleep, do they continue to have them or do they dream like the rest of us? And I had no idea. And the answer I found out from one of the psychiatrists I work with was that their dreams are, they light up the same part of the brain that our dreams do without hallucinations. So it's considered a very different process, even though it's sometimes described as like a waking nightmare it's a very different uh process to have those awake you know hallucinations versus the dream which is also not really reality but also not you know psychotic so i it i was just reminded of that when you were talking about the brain Im imaging studies about hearing and 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 hearing real voices versus hallucinations so i just wanted to add that in 
That's no, great. Thank you. Thank you. I would have never thought of it, though. No. Yeah. That is true. I never thought of it either. I was, not so I was really impressed. They did say that that sometimes people with those symptoms will interpret their dreams using uh, delusional thought content, which we might not do. So the effect one, of the dream might be different if someone's struggling with that kind of stuff, but the dream is the same. One, this is Niels Rosenbaum. Now that we're going on that tangent, one thing that is pretty common in terms of hallucinations is people as they're falling asleep or as they're waking up, can have sort of frank hallucinations. So you're kind of, you're awake and you know you're awake, but you're in that sort of hazy state. And so that's a common thing to happen to people. It's happened to Yeah, me. and it's a way for, for people without serious mental illness to get a little taste of what it might be like. That's yeah. definitely something. I know a lot of people, including myself, I've, you've had those kind of half dreams where you don't know if you're awake or asleep or did that actually happen? And it's very interesting. Yeah, this is Jerson with State Police. <laughs> I just have one more question. Um, is it possible for hallucinations to be just situational? Like if they, they have hallucinations in a certain place, but then when they leave that place, they no longer exist? Good question. I would think anything's possible. Yeah, yeah Peter. But in general, Dan Duhigg, if it's situational like that, it's going to be less likely to be something like a like a psychotic illness. So, so people with PTSD can have, you know, like hallucination like experiences um, or hallucinations, and and that can be triggered by something that is is a cue of a trauma. Um, but like, for example, schizophrenia, if you have something like schizophrenia, you generally don't have that some places and then you're free of it other places. Could it be like PTSD related? Yeah. And you could have both PTSD and schizophrenia too. Great. Thank you. That's a good question. It's great. Or it's a haunted house. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> We should have a class on how to determine the level of houses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A young priest. Uh, I want you to teach us Is there any other questions for Mary while we have her? You guys want to pick your brain? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. And then the last note, what is your favorite, um, like, de-escalation tool or, or technique tip that you normally do? There's, like, one that you're like, I always do this. What would it be? Respect. Nice. Good. Write that down, man. <laughs> you would do well served. To I would do well yes. served if I treated people with respect. <laughs> thank you. Write it down three times. Thank you, Mary, so yes. much for this. I appreciate yes, it. Yes, thank you. Could you maybe pass me my purse? Is this one yours? Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't want to have to <laughs> squeeze. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. I know, I know. In case I need something. Yeah. In case you need anything, it's in your <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Uh -huh.